Welcome to Regulated and Relational, the bi-monthly podcast produced by the Attachment and Trauma Network. Today, Julie and Ginger are excited to have Jessica Sinarski back in the studio with them. Jessica is a trauma-informed, attachment-focused therapist, author, and founder of Brave Brains. She's joining us today to talk about our hidden senses and the importance of understanding sensory differences through a trauma-informed lens. Let's listen in. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Regulated and Relational, our podcast produced by the Attachment and Trauma Network. I'm Julie Beam. And I'm Ginger Healy. And as always, we're excited to talk with you about all things trauma-informed. Today, we would like to focus on our senses, particularly our hidden senses and how they impact children who have been exposed to trauma, and more importantly, how we can help our children who struggle with sensory processing and integration. And we have a guest to help us discuss this, an expert in sensory integration and hidden senses, Jessica Sinarski. If her name sounds familiar, well, it's because she's such a good friend that this is her second appearance on our podcast. We just can't get enough of what Jessica knows and what she shares with us. And we're so excited to learn some more from her today. Ginger, can you remind everybody just exactly how amazing Jessica is? Yeah, with pleasure. Jessica Sinarski is a highly sought after therapist, speaker, and change maker. She has extensive postgraduate training and 15 years plus as a clinician and educator, which led her to create the resource and training platform, Brave Brains. She makes trauma-sensitive brain science practical, helping parents and professionals unlock resilience in themselves and their students. She's also the author of the award-winning Riley the Brave series, Hello Anger, and more. And by more, I want to talk today with her about one of her newest books, Riley the Brave Sensational Senses, because this book, at least with me, really struck a chord because I have children that struggle with sensory integration, with autism, and with things that the senses are highly involved in. So I can't wait to dive into everything behind it and everything to help kids moving forward with it. So welcome, Jessica. We're so glad you're here. And I think a good place to start would be, let's talk about how you got into all of this, especially this niche world of sensory processing, integration, and everything that goes along with it. Sure. It was a process that happened around the same time, both professionally and personally. I don't know, for those listening, hopefully you're hearing more about the senses in school. Hopefully this stuff is getting out there. But I had gone to graduate school for mental health counseling, and I don't think anyone talked about the brain or the senses much at all. And as I was doing more work, especially in the world of foster care and adoption and post-adoption support, and, you know, kids who'd had some pretty difficult life experiences, I was starting to see a pattern unfold where sensory processing was difficult for a bunch of the kiddos that I was working with and started digging into it more and learning more and came across a statistic, I need to find it again, that as many as 85 to 100% of kids in foster care would qualify for a diagnosis of sensory processing disorder. Wow. That is a staggering stat. A couple things about that. I don't love the pathologizing nature of thinking of this as a disorder, because I think the more that we understand our senses, 
the more that we can see, much like a lot of behavior and, and just coming to understand the brain a little bit better, is that our senses get very protective and they can also make life really amazing and beautiful. And finding that sweet spot is what can be difficult sometimes. So I was learning about this in my professional life at the same time. I had two little boys at the, at the time and my oldest was melting down all the time, a lot of dysregulation. He sort of joked he was like a bumper car, like he needed to be running into mm-hmm. something or someone at all times. You know, brilliant kid, but he burst into tears when he was asked to draw a house because just what I didn't know at the time was figuring out how to motor plan all these things in his head and get it down his brainstem and down his arm and and have the core strength to make his hand do the things was just too much. He was doing things like crashing his knees into the hardwood floor and and we just didn't know what was going on and came to realize that he was struggling with some sensory processing stuff. We got into some occupational therapy. I was learning about the senses in my professional life, seeking out a lot of professional development to understand what was happening for my clients and how to best support them. And then at the same time, walking through this with my son and seeing that, you know, chewing gum helped him have fewer meltdowns and doing, you know, super slams before bed where we're joyfully physical and wrestling and slamming and crashing and banging. He would literally say like, ah, like Mm -hmm. now I'm ready for sleeps. Like that was his little nervous system could settle. Mm -hmm. And so this was also, as I was diving into the brain science a little bit more and it just all fits, it all fits together and it's all very complicated. And so that began my journey into trying to make sense of this wacky world of senses. How fortuitous for the rest of us that those two things happened at the same time, that you were (laughs) and you had a personal reason to need to know more. And I'm thinking about the stat that you shared with the kids in foster care having such a high percentage and having a daughter adopted internationally where her sensory issues have been significant. And the conversation around that initially was that it was due to the lack of sensory stimulation early on, like she got little to nothing. And as I was listening to you talk, there are a lot of things the sensory systems, either them being overactive or underactive, mm-hmm. a lot of reasons for that to happen, right? There's a variety yes. of reasons it could happen. It could happen genetically. It could happen for other reasons. It's fascinating to think about that. Yes. So I think about this for the autistic community as well, that a lot of the sensory seeking that might happen for our, our autistic friends, that that. I think Western medicine sometimes pathologizes that, that that's wrong or weird or bad and we need to get rid of it. And I think part of my hope is to just normalize that the human experience. And I love how I'm probably going to say his name wrong, but Dr. Prisant, he's the author of Uniquely Human, highly recommend it to everyone, talks about like these behaviors that maybe have been called autistic are just human behaviors. It's not, you know, it's not bad. I think so much of my work, especially around trauma, is helping to make sense of these ways we have figured out to survive. 
And so if your brain and body are kind of pinging around and it's hard to tell which way is up and your senses are on overload or not getting enough input or some combination of the two, as is often the case, Mm -hmm. then it's hard to get your thinking brain, your upstairs brain in charge enough to motor plan, to get dressed in the morning, to pull out your math homework, to say, I love you, mommy, and get a big squeeze when you're feeling nervous about something, because maybe that squeeze is, you know, the the approach avoid thing that happens sometimes with touch just leaves everyone feeling frustrated, I think, and disconnected. And that really is where I want to intervene is it doesn't have to be like this. We don't have to end up frustrated and disconnected when we can understand what's really going on underneath. Mm-hmm. I think you have hit on something so important here. And it's very personal for me because my firstborn child was my first. So I knew nothing about parenthood. And of course I had all these expectations and I could not wait to just smother him with love, like squeeze him until he burst. But it became apparent quite quickly that it was painful for him. I mean, the arching of the back told me he did not want that. And it took four years to get a correct diagnosis. And so now, of course, we know more and we're doing more, but we're still on this journey and this path. And you mentioned two things that I just thought were very powerful. First of all, I love that you said, because, okay, let me back up at the very beginning. I said, I have two kids that struggle with autism and I want to make it clear. I would not change them for the world as far as this is their superpower and it makes them unique. And I love, I I can't imagine them any other way, but there are things that I don't want them to hurt and struggle with because for my oldest son, it became a safety issue. He was not able to navigate, you know, you talk about motor planning, he would just trip and fall over nothing. And we were in the emergency room several times as a toddler with head injuries. And that's not okay. That's not safe. So that's what I very clearly want to point. Those are struggles that we can help parents with. What you pointed out was that there are these adaptations and accommodations that children find within the autism community and others, sensory integration or the developmental trauma that help them feel safe, that we shouldn't necessarily pull away from them certain sounds or certain movements or certain things that stimulate them Mm -hmm. and help them feel safe within their bodies that we, I think as a community have been prone to want to make socially acceptable, you know, Mona Delahook does a great job in her book, beyond behaviors about talking about, we don't necessarily need to take that behavior away from them if it is serving them and helping them and making them feel safe. So delineating between two, helping them find safety, but helping them find felt safety in their bodies. I think that's a great way to talk about that, Ginger, that just like anyone has certain things that they need support with, Someone who is autistic might have something that they need support with, like, how can I, you know, navigate the room without bashing my head into something? Okay, we need some support around that. Or how can I, you know, get through the day without melting down, you know, without my emotions sort of bubbling over in ways that hurt me or hurt others? Yes, let's support around that. And 
see the beauty, see the superpowers that are there as well. I, I love that. So I want to start at the beginning to make sure that all the listeners are with us because some of you are like, okay, well, we're talking about senses. So we're talking about Mm. the five senses, right? The hearing, Mm. the smelling, the touch, the seeing. What did I leave out? Taste. Taste. There we go. (laughs) Yes and no, right? Yes. Yes. And yes. And (laughs) I love talking about this because again, Like we don't know what we don't know. And so what I didn't know for my son and for my clients was that there are three hidden senses. There are three more senses that don't often get talked about. Two for sure. One that gets some debate about whether it is the most important sense or whether it doesn't really count as a sense. So I'll leave that to my listeners to parse out. But Regardless, there are these three ways our body and brain take in information that are really, really important to feeling safe and in control. Let's start with the vestibular system. So that is a mouthful, vestibular. It is sensed by your inner ear. There's receptors in your inner ear that take in information, particularly about the position of your head, but all kinds of other things as well. In Riley the Brave Sensational Senses, I do not make small children learn the word vestibular. I save that for the afterward. But I do talk about this sense as your sense of balance or movement. So all our senses, their primary job is to protect us from danger. So even the five that we're used to, you know, the part of the reason we have such a big disgust, you know, reaction to certain smells or tastes is It's our body's way of trying to say danger, danger. Mm -hmm. They get overzealous. And some of your kids might have that danger, danger reaction to like broccoli or as one of my boys struggled with, you know, savory flavors are really tough for him. His little brain says danger, danger, which can make mealtimes fairly miserable. With our hidden senses, that same thing is going on where the vestibular system is trying to keep us safe. It's trying to help me feel stabled and anchored. It's trying to keep my head from bonking into things. I think of one of the times I feel this activated is, you know, that feeling when you're like really close to something and like jerk your head away, you know, you get that sense of like danger. If you get motion sick or you've ever had like an inner ear infection, you know how uncomfortable it is when this system is saying, "Uh uh-uh, like things are not lining up. This is not okay. The flip side is, so if you think about early childhood, infancy, prenatal development and infancy and early childhood, that is a time of a tremendous amount of head movement. Mm-hmm. In utero, babies are upside down and swimming around and wiggling around and shifting around. In infancy, babies are constantly in motion. Their heads are looking from one way to the other. How many times do they get practice at you know getting their heads in different positions? Mm-hmm. All of those seemingly inconsequential things are feeding this vestibular sense. Mm-hmm. So when you think about soothing a baby... You say, shh, and maybe you hold them close. There's that tactile. Maybe you give them close to a smell, like mama's smell that they know, like all of those kinds of things. But the vestibular sense is a huge part of that baby feeling safe and stable again. So swaying and rocking and even like I've known kiddos who like they won't quiet until they're in the car, that motion of the car. As soon as the car stops, baby wakes up, right? 
or sitting on top of the washing machine, right. or you guys can't see me, but there was this move where we hold our son across our hands, like lift him up and down, sort of like bounce him up and down, like up above our heads and down again. We called it the offering. That was the only thing that would settle him. He'd suck his little binky and we would do the offering. We got really strong arm muscles. You know, a friend of mine, they would be on the yoga ball. He had a daughter who really needed a lot of bouncing and movement. And he looked down and he had like gotten a little bit of a six pack from being on the yoga ball, bouncing his daughter, because that's what she needed to feel stable. So these things don't magically end in infancy. We think about childhood play. Again, there's lots of vestibular input coming in with the chase and dodge games and climbing on playground equipment and going down slides and swinging and all of these things that are part of childhood, hopefully, Mm -hmm. if we're dealing with trauma, if we're dealing with toxic stress and poverty, if we're dealing with the systemic marginalization of impoverished communities that don't have access to places where kids can move and play and be free, then that sense is not getting what it needs Mm -hmm. for a number of things. This starts to get very complicated, but at the very base, it doesn't get enough to feel safe and in control. It doesn't get enough input to let the upstairs brain keep growing to make the connections that it needs to make to integrate everything else that's going on. And that's a problem. All right, so that was just one. That was just one of our hidden senses. Number two is proprioception. And this one I did actually fit into a children's story. My editor (laughs) said, are you sure? Are you sure we need proprioception? I made it playful. Your kids will like it. It'll be great. This is a powerhouse of a sense, especially related to regulation. Your Mm -hmm. podcast, Regulated Mm -hmm. and Relational, right? Mm -hmm. This is, again, a big part of infancy, banging, bouncing, padding. All of those things are giving proprioceptive input. Proprioception is received by our muscles and joints. We have little sensors in our muscles and joints that send information back to the brain. And kids need a lot of this. And Mm -hmm. so one of the things that I found can be really helpful in a classroom setting is if you see things kind of going sideways to take a probe break, to get a little proprioception in. I mean, you guys know examples of this. It can be as simple as like, doing wall Mm pushups before you move on to your next thing. Or my son would like carry a box of books to the next teacher, whether that teacher needed it or not, (laughs) you know, take a trampoline break, bounce like kangaroos to get into line. And then take a big deep breath and put your hands down by your side. Maybe even clasp your hands together. So Mm -hmm. you're giving some proprioception to your hands because otherwise Mm -hmm. those hands end up on your friends and the walls. Mm -hmm. Let's guide kids in how they can get the input they need instead of punishing them for seeking seeking input that helps them feel safe and in control. Well, and it's exactly what you just said. What we tend to do when we don't feel like there's, you know, obedience or following of directions, whatever our expectations are, we punish it. Now looking through this lens of 
they need this. They require this. This is yeah. why recess is so important. This is why yeah. you need a brain break and a proprioception break. Otherwise, yeah, it's going to come out some way or another. So I love the idea of shifting our expectations into this is a need that will pay off big time. You know, if we want a child to learn a lesson or to do a chore or whatever else the goal is. Well, and I was just thinking about what the proprioception looks like when you have the need and it hasn't been met and you kind of described it with your son in terms of him crashing into everything. My daughter used to have a really hard time just walking beside us. She just yeah. sort of wander into somebody. You know, it was like, she yes, know where she was in space. She'd either be so far away from you. You couldn't hold hands with her or she'd be stepping on your feet. And she it was like, she didn't have a sense yes. of that she was there. If that right. Matters. And she's not trying to be difficult. No, it's, that it was I, just... it's, it's what you said, like not having a good sense of where their body is in space. That's a great way to think about proprioception. I think that's part of why my son seemed like a bumper car because he needed that impact to know where he was. Mm-hmm. He needed to feel the walls. If he was sitting, I mean, at movie theaters, airplanes, anywhere that a seat could be kicked, the seat would be kicked because he <laughs> needed that yeah. impact, yeah. you know? And so instead of punishing that, we would try to find ways to give him that feedback. So that might mean having like a Lycra sack or something that he could kick against. Maybe it's getting a TheraBand on the chair legs at school where kids can push against that without right. tapping, tapping, tapping. That's going to bug their peers. You know, in movie theaters, it worked better if he sat on his knees, like he needs some input mm-hmm. and that's okay. That's not bad. And so instead of me seeing him as being defiant or disobedient or disruptive, destructive, right? Like kids with sensory processing challenges can look like a lot of really negative labels if that's the lens we're using, or we can see that we all have senses We all have more senses than we realize. And lots of us struggle with getting those senses to work together in ways that help us feel safe and in control. And if I'm an educator, I'm sort of thinking, okay, I've been taught as an educator to appeal to the senses I knew about, especially the auditory and the visual sense, right? My teacher, I'm going to try both approaches, right? I'm going to tell you, I'm going to show you over and over again to really appeal to those senses. And I might let you smell and taste whatever it is, depending on what we're yeah, doing, sure. right? Or have some sort of tactile interaction with it. Right. But if I don't know about vestibular and proprioception, I'm not using those as avenues of learning and avenues of helping to maintain attention, but we should be, right? Yes. How sad for everyone involved. Yes. And so that's really my hope and, and why I'm so grateful to be having this conversation. I really want to spread the word about these hidden senses and how we can get all our senses involved in learning. You know, play hopscotch as you're working on your times tables or, you know, crawl around the classroom to get to the next sight word. Little things that we know from the research helps kids retain learning better. It can feel, I think, really scary as an educator because like, it seems like the kids will get out of control. 
That's one of the things I hear a lot is like, oh, geez, if I let him bounce around, if we take a dance break, if we do that, they'll run all over me. It'll be bad. Well, then we use some of our relational regulation, you know, co-regulation mm-hmm. skills to get back to that learning ready state. So I gave the example with getting in line. If you're doing an activity where they're, you know, crawling around and trying to like find their next sight word or something like that, then before you send them out to do the active thing, you have a very clear cue about how we know that it's time to stop, whether that's turning the music off, whether that's three claps, okay, three claps, and then we listen again for the next instruction. Maybe it's that you're giving some visual clues and snapping at the front, and then everybody joins you in a rhythmic, like you're swaying your body back and forth and snapping, and that's regulating as we're in rhythm together. Maybe we do the big active thing, and then all the hands go up, and we take a breath in, all the hands come down. It takes an extra step, but man, is it worth it for a much happier classroom and, you know, you enjoying your job more along right. the way because you're not dealing with as many behavior issues. Right. And I'm just thinking about everything that teaches that child's brain. It teaches them that they mm. can get that sensory input. They also need to be ready to attend to something else. Like, you know, there's an expectation yeah. of that. And then that whole with the breathing and stuff, I'm just thinking all the skill set you have just given this child beyond whatever the academic was, you just were trying to teach them. That's right. That's right. And isn't that what we want? We know we have to teach the whole child. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of leads us into the eighth sense that interoception, that's the receptors that are in your organs, like in your internal organs, like deeper in your skin to sense temperature, to sense in your belly, like, am I hungry? Am I thirsty? You know, do I need to go to the bathroom? Like all of those kinds of things. Well, we know helping kids, helping adults know what's actually going on inside will help us live our lives better. Right. And so for our kids, the more that we normalize getting to know their body and brain, the more that we incorporate some of these safe, gentle, playful reflection practices. Well, let me finish that sentence. The more that we do that, the better it is for them in the long run. We want kids who know themselves to be able to advocate for themselves or do the adaptive supports that they need to be able to walk across the room without bashing their head into something or to be in a public space without, you know, accidentally feeling someone up because their hands are roaming because they're just trying to find themselves in space. We want that. We want kids to know themselves. And we know that trauma and a whole variety of other things can make it hard to know what's going on inside. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes what I've seen with like the mindfulness movement in schools is you know, well, it doesn't work for the kids that we were trying to reach anyway. So just, just forget about it. There's all (laughs) kinds of reasons that a kiddo might not be engaging in, you know, the specific mindfulness practice that you're trying to engage in. There can be cultural reasons. Are you speaking in a way that they feel felt and seen? Mm -hmm. There can be also just nervous system, physiological things where, 
you know, being told to close your eyes is really, really scary. So one of those trauma informed shifts we can make is if you're doing breathing exercises, if you're doing mindfulness practices with your students, never, ever tell them they have to close their eyes. You can invite it, but we don't want to force that. We think sometimes that mindfulness is supposed to be done with this voice and it's supposed to you know, be calm and still. Mindfulness can be mindful walking outside and crunching through the grass and hearing each footstep crunch. It can be mindfully, you know, clapping your hands together and feeling the tingles on your hands. Like there's so many ways that it can look to help kids get to know these internal senses. And so I just want to take the mystery out of that a little Mm -hmm. bit. And that's my hope with Riley the Brave Sensational Senses. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. There's so many things running through my head. I think about kids who have experienced trauma, who don't trust themselves or don't think they are worthy of, you know, feeling the way they feel. And so they're not necessarily going to speak up, but, you know, a mindfulness yoga practice of bending over could be a very big trigger for this child. So there's so much there that is just so Mm -hmm. powerful. If we just sit back and take in the children in the room and who's there and their experience and and what works for one and just being open to that. So and the introspection, I mean there are introception, introspection is good too, but <laughs> it is <laughs> introspection for us and my family, my daughter did not know either when she was hungry or when she was yeah, absolutely from absolutely. her early neglect. So if you don't know when yeah. you're hungry you don't know when to ask for food. And so it comes out in a behavior always, right? Because when you get hangry, you know, the Snickers commercial will tell you, there you are, right? Yes. And then the flip side of that is if I don't ever know I'm full, guess what I'm prone to do? Yeah. 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 Eat and eat and eat and eat. And so there was a lot of challenge in trying to find help for first to find recognition that this was a real thing and a problem and second to find help for because that is all fairly new in the sensory field altogether right is understanding of all of that and yet when you cite the statistics for kids of foster care I immediately go to kids who have endured significant trauma or abuse or neglect it sort of lines up and makes sense. They, it does. They have had to, for survival's sake, ignore what internal senses have been telling them for most of their That's lives. That's exactly right. It's survival and way to go. I am so glad you figured out a way to survive the unsurvivable. And so now we're doing this gentle turning toward and it's going to feel uncomfortable. Oh, it's going to feel really weird and vulnerable and that scary. And I'm here with you. That's that relational part. We're going to navigate it together, right? Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's where I want to go next, like how to navigate it, because I think of also my son Mm -hmm. who has a very, very high pain tolerance. That Mm -hmm. was also why we ended up in the ER so many times. There was one time when he said, oh, I've got a stomach ache. And so I didn't pay too much attention to it. But he had ruptured his appendix. And if we hadn't have responded in time... You know, we've talked about kids in foster care, kids with trauma, kids on the autism spectrum. There's so many situations where these senses have created emotional challenges that we need to intervene on. So talk to us about where to go from here. What really works in helping these kids? 
Sure. Right. It's a big, messy world as we get to know the brain and body a little bit more. I think if you want to boil it down to three things, I will say the first is to be curious. If we can approach from that state of curiosity, that puts us in a good spot in our nervous system instead of like command and demand to really take in the information. So does the same frustrating behavior happen at mealtime? Like, is it always right before mealtime or is it always with socks? Is it always at bath? You know, is there some certain part of the school day where they seem to be losing it regularly? So let's be curious about that. What might be going on? Not pathologizing, not saying there's something wrong with this kid, but really being on the same team. And sometimes that means seeing the wacky behavior as whatever that that kid is going to trying to communicate. Mm-hmm. So like some of the things that we've been talking about today. So I really think as simple as it sounds, that's the first step is just to bring, you know, bring an openness, bring a curiosity to whatever situations are sending you to your downstairs brain, because you're just trying to figure out how to survive the day and how your senses can feel regulated. Right. Um, as this kid's crinkling the water bottle in the backseat of your car and you want to like, you know, throw it out the window. If we can whew, take a breath and be curious about all of the senses and what might be going on with them, that's a good place to start. Number two, I would say be proactive. So once you've done a little digging, I am hopeful that Riley the Brave Sensational Senses can be a little bit of a guide with doing some digging. Once you've done a little bit of digging, think about what can be part of the day so that we don't reach that hangry point. And I don't just mean food hangry. So we don't reach that proprioceptive deficit that leaves this kid, you know, rambunctious and hyper or shut down and grumpy at one o'clock in the afternoon. What needs to be part of the day? Do we need to chew gum at at certain periods to be able to pay attention? Do we need less stimulation in certain ways? You know, would a break with noise-canceling headphones help for a kiddo to be able to do some work without all of the noises Mm -hmm. in the classroom? And these aren't things to impose on the kid. These are things to explore with kids. Like, don't make the plan without them. (laughs) Think about it. Be curious together. Be proactive together. And kids are going to want to try the funnest stuff. They're going to want to try like sucking on mint candies while they're doing things. Okay, let's try that. Did it actually help you or did it become a distraction, right? Like, did that fidget you know, was that actually a tool for you or was it more of a distracting toy? All right, let's evaluate that and try again and repeat that, be curious, be proactive cycle. I was just thinking something hit me when you were talking because I keep thinking about my son and this proactive piece, especially, well, and the curious piece, it really takes the shame out of these behaviors for these kids. Because so many times for so many years before we really understood what was going on and why he was doing what he was doing, he would be shamed for his behaviors from teachers and from me, just, you know, stop doing that. Why are you doing that? And making him feel like everything he did was wrong or that he was a failure. And one day I went to pick him up from school and he was in the corner of the classroom on his belly reading a book. And I went, oh no, he's in timeout or he's being, you know, 
mm. excluded and in the corner. Yeah, he's in trouble. And I thought, here we go again, you know, this poor kid. And then, you know, how am I going to handle it? Because I don't want to make things worse like I've done in the past. And the teacher said, oh, oh, no, 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 no. We figured something out. He completed all his assignments today because he did it on his belly. Mm-hmm. And all the other students were sitting at desks Yay. and he kept falling out of his desk for no reason. Yep. And he couldn't, like we've talked about before, feel where he was in his desk. And so he would fall. And she, for yeah. a long time, thought he was doing that on purpose until yeah. she realized this kid, he's doing the best he can. He really is. He's such a good kid. And he always is so embarrassed when he falls. And so she said, bud, do you want to just, instead of getting back in your desk, sit on the floor. And then the next thing she knew he was on his tummy on the floor and he had done reassignments without even her checking in. And they both just had this huge aha, which led to an aha on my part. But at the end of the day, it was the first time he came home and didn't feel like embarrassed Mm -hmm. or in trouble Mm -hmm. or ashamed Mm -hmm. because she finally had gotten curious. And now we had a proactive plan for the next day. Like it was life-changing, you know, that's huge and beautiful. And I think all too common, all parts of that, right. Being the mom who's like, just get it together. (laughs) Like stop being embarrassing or, you know, do the thing. Like, I don't want to get another call from the school. Totally relatable. And teachers like I've got 27 students. Like you want me to be flexible. I mean, with everyone, like this is a lot. I get that. That's a heavy load. But I think what you're bringing up is the third thing I was going to say is be flexible. And at first being flexible is more on the adult's shoulders. Being curious, we're going to do that together. Being proactive, we're going to do that together. Being flexible, at first, that's kind of our job. We have to bring our upstairs brain power to the situation to say, oh, he's not doing this to try to, quote, get attention. He is doing this because he can't, <laughs> he can't do anything else. Like he right. cannot stay in that chair. So how can he be successful? Huh, let's try this. Let's be flexible. Maybe he needs to do it this way. I know a lot of kids who do better when they are hanging their head upside down, Right, that they get a little input on, you know, tactile and proprioceptive input on the top of their head on the ground. They get that vestibular shift. And they can read better mm-hmm. when they're hanging upside down. Okay, let's be a little weird. It's okay. <laughs> you know, right. I had someone say like, you don't mean weird, you mean different. And I'm like, no, I mean, I won't say you're weird, but I will say like, I'm okay being a little weird. And I hope that we can just normalize that a little bit, that it is going to all look different and that's okay. In fact, it's good and it's shame reducing and it's humanizing, and it's empowering. And now this kid who just, he's not trying to be a bad kid. He's not trying to be difficult in her class. He wants to be successful. He just needed that little shift to be able to be successful. And then doesn't that make it easier to go to school the next day and on and on and on? Yeah. You've got a positive experience at school and that's yeah, Yeah. huge, huge. And I'm just thinking about all the way in our adult lives that we self-accommodate, whether it looks like or not, right? 
Ginger knows I have pins that click because I am a pin clicker. I'm trying to do that while we podcast in such a way that you all don't hear it, but I'm sure our audio tech knows that Julie's clicking her pin again. It is the way in which I can keep my attention focused on what we're talking about. It's huge for me. And I have a sister who was a hair twirler, much to my mother's chagrin, and she still occasionally twirls her hair, you know, because she needs that input. I have a daughter who is an auditory learner and she literally cannot read without background noise, which blows my mind because I function just the opposite way. If I'm reading, the last thing I need is background noise. And for the longest, when she was a child and she was doing her homework with the music blaring, I was like, oh no, 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 no. But she literally couldn't do it the other way. And she'd figured it out on her own as a lot of Mm -hmm. us do, and we should embrace that. And we should be flexible enough to help children who are struggling with whatever their sense is to figure out what their answer is, because there is an answer for all of us. Well, Jessica, we could talk to you about this forever, but, and we so appreciate the vestibular, the proprioceptive and the interceptive lesson here in terms of our hidden senses Especially if that's the first time that you've heard that, it's really important information to think about with the kids that you're raising and the kids that you're teaching and the kids that you're helping in a variety of ways. Thank you, Jessica, as always. Yeah, we will link your book in the show notes because the other thing that we learned from you in our past podcast was how important the storytelling is with kids too and how your books are so powerful in that way. And so we'll definitely put a link for that in our show notes. Absolutely. And I'll send you the blog link for educators and for, you know, parents and counselors and whoever else might be listening that just digs into the senses a little bit more. If this is kind of a new area for you and you want to, you want to take a peek. That's great. Well, thank you again for being here. Thank you listeners for listening in and we hope you've learned something today and we are looking forward to our next episode with you. Bye everyone. This has been another episode of Regulated and Relational. Next time, Julie and Ginger will explore the concept of felt safety, an important tenant in helping all children, but especially those impacted by trauma. A special thanks to Lorraine Schneider, our editor, and Joe Kramer for donating our music. For more information about the Attachment and Trauma Network, visit our website at attachtrauma.org. Show notes and upcoming episodes will be available on our website and through anchor.fm. I'm Danny Pankratz. Thanks for listening.